Well, I would ask that you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10 once again, Mark chapter 10. And last week we saw that a young man, a wealthy young man, a religious leader, probably a leader in the uh, ruler in the local synagogue, came to Jesus and asked him a question that we would long for people to ask us. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so it was a wonderful opportunity to learn from the master evangelist Jesus. Here's a one-on-one witnessing opportunity, as it were, and here is Jesus, the master evangelist. What can we learn from the way he responded to this young man? Well, first we note that he faced the man with the character of God. Good teacher, Jesus responds, there's no one good but God. Now, why did Jesus say that? He wasn't denying his own goodness. He certainly wasn't denying his own godhood. But he told the young man, no one is good but God, to impress upon him that the only way we can see and know ourselves rightly is against the backdrop of the purity and goodness of God. You need to understand, young man, you are not good. None of of the people in the world are good. Only God is good. You know, the, we have fresh fallen white snow. I don't know about you, but looking at my house, it's looking dirtier with the snow. And I'm thinking, that I need to get my house power washed. Usually it doesn't look that dirty. It's, it's tan. It's pretty clean. But with the white snow, it's looking more dirty. And against the backdrop of God's purity and God's holiness and God's goodness, we are all very filthy in our sin. And he wanted to help the man see that. And then he lays on the man some commandments, mostly from the Ten Commandments. Why? Not because you can be saved by commandment keeping, you clearly cannot. But to further face this man with the fact that he's a sinner, to try to get him to see his sin in the light of the law of God. Paul says in Romans 3.20, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is a mirror to show us our uncleanness. And so he holds the mirror of the law up in front of this man with hopes that he would see himself as he really is. But he doesn't get it, does he? He doesn't get it. He says, I've kept all these things from from my youth up. I can check all the boxes. I'm okay with the commandments, Jesus. Well, Jesus knew he wasn't okay. And so at that point, Jesus pulls the covers off of the man's self-righteousness, and he puts his finger on the idol of this man's heart. Do you want eternal life? Let me point to you what is hindering you from attaining eternal life. It turned out this man loved money and loved possessions. That was his idol. That was his God. And so Jesus gives him the terms of the gospel. One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Essentially, Jesus was calling him to repent, to turn from that which he loved more than he loved God, his money, his things, his possessions, and to believe in Jesus, not only as Savior, but to believe in him as his new master. Sadly, the man although grieving, was not willing to let go of his idol and to follow Jesus as king, and he goes away, turning his back on the only way of eternal life that exists, turning, literally turning his back on Jesus Christ. Well, our text this morning follows on the heels of that encounter of Jesus with this rich young ruler, as we call him. We will see how the 12 
disciples react to the scenario they have just witnessed and how Jesus responds to them. Our text is Mark 10, 23 to 27. Let me read that. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is, at least in my version here, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Some of you read differently, and I'll explain that. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible, but not with God for all things are possible with God. So the man walks away, unwilling to pay the price to follow Jesus. And Jesus looks around at his disciples, and he gives them the moral of the story. What is the main takeaway? What is it that Jesus wants them to get from that encounter? It is this, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. So we can entitle this message, this portion of Scripture, The Danger of Riches, or as I'm entitling it, The Difficulty for the Rich to Enter Heaven. But before we plunge into the text, I want to step back and kind of give us a big picture on how we as Christians ought to relate to possessions in particular and to the natural world in general. You see, there are two errors that we need to avoid. There are two ditches that we need to stay out of when it comes to how we look at money and things and possessions. There is the ditch on the one hand of asceticism, and there's the ditch of the health, wealth, prosperity, heresy. So before we look in the text, let's get a broad perspective, a new covenant perspective on the use of things, money, possessions. On the one hand, the New Testament gives no place to asceticism. Now, what is asceticism? I've spoken about it several times in the past. Asceticism is the philosophy that says a higher level of spirituality can be attained by an austere denial of the flesh. Historically, ascetics have advocated foregoing marriage and possessions in favor of a life of celibacy and poverty. You see, this is the path to greater holiness. But there are several errors with that approach to life. First of all, and I've mentioned this before, it assumes that abstinence in using lawful things is better than temperance. And it is not. The scriptures call us to moderation and self-control, but not austerity. Here's Paul as an example in Philippians 4.12. Remember what he says? We read it. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. I know how to be filled and how to go hungry. When Paul had an abundance, he enjoyed it. He can enjoy feasting and being full. These are good gifts from God and he enjoyed the abundance. When he had less, He was okay with that too. His contentment was not in his things. It was in the Lord. And so he knew how to abound. He didn't despise the days of abundance, nor the days of want. And so the scripture doesn't always advocate abstinence, but often moderation in the use of things. It is said by those who practice asceticism that it is optional. For example, the Roman Catholic Church is a great example And they have their priests and nuns 
abstain from marriage. Why? That's the high road to holiness. But wait a minute. If that's the high road to holiness, why is it good for just a subset of the people? Why isn't it good for all of us? Why would not all of us be able to have that path to holiness if it's a special path to holiness? Of course, there's a problem with that, because if we were all celibate, the world would not be populated and would come to an end. But the scripture categorically forbids the ascetic life. I've read this before, and a few years ago we actually studied 1 Timothy, but the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. What are those doctrines of demons? Well, skipping down to verse 4, for everything created, I'm sorry, verse 3, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. It is a doctrine of demons to forbid marriage or to forbid certain foods. The ascetic lifestyle is here condemned in Scripture by the Apostle Paul. It's kind of rooted in a philosophical dualism, that says the material world is evil and the spiritual and the ethereal is good. That is not a biblical mindset. And so on the one hand, we need to reject asceticism, the philosophy that says a strict, austere denial of, of earthly pleasures is the high road to holiness. That's not biblical. God has given us things to enjoy as part of his creation. But the other ditch is the ditch of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which is not a gospel. We'll call it a, a heresy. And that's the philosophy that says spiritual prosperity is measured by material possessions. In other words, God doesn't want you to be unhealthy. God does. He only wants you to be wealthy. And it puts such an emphasis on material blessings that the scriptures don't put. And here, I think we need to recognize something of a contrast. As we move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, there is continuity and there is unity, but there's also some discontinuity and some expansion. What I mean is under the Old Covenant, God promised to bless his people materially. The righteous are promised that they will be blessed and the unrighteous will be cursed. And so, you know, they will be blessed in, in, in the fruit of the womb. They'll be blessed in, in their, uh, the, the fertility of their ground. And physical blessing is often the mark of, of God's, uh, or material uh, prosperity is often the mark of God's blessing in the Old Testament. Now, it, in a sense, God still gives good gifts under the new covenant, but there's something of a shift. The new covenant is a more spiritual covenant than the old. God was speaking in picture lessons in the Old Testament, and now we've arrived at an age of maturity. When your children begin to be interested in books, they are picture books largely. The pictures are large and the print is small and few, and they progress out of that. And the age of the new covenant is an age of greater spiritual maturity, where there's more of an emphasis on the spiritual blessing. So Ephesians 1.3, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The New Testament doesn't despise or disparage 
the enjoyment of material things. They are good gifts. We are to enjoy them. They're from God. Good food is from God. Marriage is from God. Children is from God. But in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, this, there's an emphasis on spiritual blessings as we anticipate the ultimate spiritual blessings of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, that's contrary to the health, wealth, and prosperity heresy. They say that if you're really blessed of God, you will be blessed with health, and you'll be blessed with wealth, and that's not always the case. Sometimes God takes away our health. Sometimes God puts us in need in order to produce spiritual fruit in our lives and, and dependency upon him. So I say that's the other ditch we need to stay out of. Avoid the the, the ditch of asceticism. Enjoy the good gifts that God has given. Don't be austere in rejecting them. They're from God. He gives them to you to enjoy. On the other hand, stay out of the ditch of health, wealth, and prosperity because material prosperity and spiritual blessing do not equate. There's not a one-to-one -one correlation between them. Well, now let's look at the text. And the first point I call your attention to is the difficulty for the rich to enter heaven progressively presented by Jesus. We have, looking at the text in verse 23, in Jesus looking around. That's fascinating in itself. Several times in the Gospel of Mark, we find Jesus looking around. In Mark 3, 5, he looked around in the synagogue at the Pharisees, and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. In Mark 3.34, looking around, behold, my brothers and sisters, when his mother and brothers come and he's teaching and he says, who are my real brothers and sisters? It's those who do the will of God. In Mark 5.32, that woman came up and touched the hem of his garment. And it says he looked around to see the woman who had done this. Mark 11.11, 11, where we haven't gotten yet, Jesus answered, entered Jerusalem into the temple and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Jesus was alert to his surroundings. He knew what was happening around him. He was especially keen to the dispositions of those around him. And that could be a sermon in itself. And we should be like Jesus. We should be alert to what's happening around us. The most poignant occasion when Jesus looked was when Peter had just denied him and is walking across the courtyard. And the same word, Jesus looked at him. And Peter knew what he had done, and his heart just melted. He went out and wept bitterly. Jesus, looking around, he was aware of what was happening around him. And by looking around here, he's engaging the attention of the disciples. He wants to teach them something from the encounter that they had just witnessed. And first, note that Jesus asserts the difficulty of a rich man going to heaven. Verse 23, Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Literally, how with difficulty they, having riches, will enter the kingdom of God. They had just seen this man leave Jesus sorrowful, and they knew why he had left. He had, he had a choice between Christ and his possessions, and he chose his riches. Now, here's the lesson. It's hard for the rich those who have attained an abundance of money and things to enter the kingdom of God. What is it about riches that can bar a person from God and from heaven? Let's note several things. 
Riches can consume one's affections. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it can take your affections away from God. The Pharisees were no lovers of God. They were externalists in their worship, as we saw this morning, and they were lovers of money. We're told in 1 Timothy uh, or 2 Timothy that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me, the Apostle Paul, and gone to Thessalonica. The, the love, the allurement of the world and the things of the world took him away from God. Jesus said, you cannot love God and mammon, wealth. Either you'll love the one and hate the other or vice versa. So riches can consume our affections and take our affections away from God. Secondly, riches can become the object of our trust. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 7, tell the rich not to put their trust in the uncertainty of riches. How is it that the rich come to trust in their riches? Well, just consider practically. Often the rich live on a secluded estate, a gated community with tight security. They don't have to feel fear economic poverty. They're not working for anyone. They don't have to fear the system. They usually don't have to fear even legal indictment because if they have accusers, they have enough money to, to pay for the best lawyers and, and pay them off. And so no one's telling them what to do. They're giving the orders. And this can lead to a delusive sense of security and well-being. I mean, I'm, I'm the boss. I'm in control. I have all I need. Everything's well with me. I'm safe. Not knowing that their soul at the same time is dangling over hell. That was the problem with the man in the parable in Luke 12. He had a great year. He tore down his barns, built bigger barns. And he said to himself, soul, take your ease. You've got goods laid up for many years. But the moral of the story is he didn't know that that night his soul was required of him and he was not rich toward God. And so riches can delude us into thinking we're safe and secure and become a misguided object of trust. Thirdly, riches can make one proud. They can make one proud and God resists the proud. You know, in James 1, James says, let the rich exult in his humiliation and the poor in his exaltation. Why should the rich man rejoice in his humiliation? Because being rich, he was in danger of trusting his riches. But God humbled him to see that although he is rich in this world, he's not rich toward God. And in that case, the believer repents and believes. Now he's got eternal life, and he rejoices. Thank you, Lord, for humbling me. Thank you for taking the blinders off and showing me that I wasn't safe and secure with my riches, but I was a spiritually poor man. And thank you for giving me spiritual and eternal riches. So the rich man is to rejoice in his humiliation because riches can make one proud and God resists the proud, Peter says. And then riches engross time and can produce anxious cares that choke out God. Remember the parable of the sower, the seed that falls on the thorny soil. What happens? The care of the world and riches choke out the word and it becomes unfruitful. When you've got a lot of stuff, you need to manage it. You need to care for it. You need to oversee it. You need to protect it. And all that takes time and can lead to anxiety and a, a preoccupation with things that take your heart away from God. 
Further, riches often give birth to other sins. In James chapter 5, James, as he closes out his letter, has some words of indictment for the rich. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and silver have rusted. Then he says in verse 4, Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which you, which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Sometimes riches can lead to other sins. You know, the lifestyles of the rich and famous are often uh, filled with sordid tales of sin, and often they don't end well. But then finally, riches are sometimes the product of sin. Not only do riches cause you to sin or or be the occasion for sin, you've got all this money, all this wealth, it can lead to lives of immorality and, and other sins, but sometimes the road to riches is paved with sin itself. And so Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 9, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. You know, we read about white-collar crimes, uh, crimes committed by people who are, are uh, in the upper echelons of business and, and who are wealthy. And sometimes the way people get rich is by extortion and lying and stealing and oppressing workers and defrauding, etc. And so... Jesus said it's difficult for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven for all these reasons and perhaps more. But then Jesus reasserts the difficulty. The disciples hear these words, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And it says they were amazed. They were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered and he comes back and he ratchets it up. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some of you have how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God, right? And some of you don't in your translation. That's one of those textual variants. There are different manuscripts that say different things. There is some strong evidence for the reading how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God, in which Jesus is just repeating what he has just said. But there's also, and some believe even stronger evidence for the reading that I have here that says, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Not merely talking about hard being hard for the rich to enter, but hard in general. It's not only hard for men as rich men to enter the kingdom, but it's hard for men as men to enter the kingdom. If that's the correct reading, then what Jesus is reflecting, what he says on the Sermon on the Mount when he says there are two gates and two roads. There's a broad gate that leads to a broad road that leads to destruction, and many are on it. There's a narrow gate that leads to a narrow road that leads to life, and few there be that find it. So not only is it hard for the rich man to enter heaven, it's hard for people in general to enter heaven. Why? Well, because of the natural human heart. What does Paul tell us in Romans 8, beginning at verse 5, contrasting those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit? He says, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. 
For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. And we are born with our mindset on the flesh. We are born with a hostility and an aversion to the things of the spirit of God. So not only is it difficult for the rich to enter heaven, if this reading is correct, it's difficult for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus asserts the difficulty, then he repeats it, he reasserts it, and then he illustrates it. Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, how many of you have read that this is speaking of the eye of a needle was the, the, the gate to the entrance of the city, a, a, a low gate, and that the camel had to get on its knees and be unloaded in order to get into the city. Um, that's a common explanation, but all the commentators I read did not support that idea. In fact, Lenski says that that idea of um, the eye of the needle coming to refer to a small, small portal in the wall didn't come about until the 15th century. So Jesus is probably speaking literally here of absurdity. A camel go through the eye of a needle. I remember seeing a cartoon, and it had this stern, nomad-looking guy holding up a needle and pointing to the camel. You go through there. And the camel was just terrified. But I think that's what Jesus is talking about. Remember in Matthew 23, he says, the Pharisees strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. He's using the language of absurdity, humor. And he says, it's so hard for a rich man to enter heaven as it would be for a two-hump camel, or even a one-hump camel, to go through the little eye of a needle. So, then, finally, Jesus reaches the pinnacle he asserts the difficulty, he reasserts the difficulty, he illustrates the difficulty by this absurdity, and then he states that the difficulty is really an impossibility. In verse 26, looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. How is it? Well, we're going to see that in the final point. And so Jesus progressively presents this reality. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But now consider the difficulty repeatedly marveled at by the disciples. Jesus asserts the difficulty in verse 23, and it says the disciples were amazed. They're astonished. Why is it so startling to them? Well, consider their background in the Old Covenant. As I mentioned earlier, the Old Covenant attached great importance to physical, material blessings. In the Old Covenant, the righteous were promised material rewards, children, crops, fertile animals, victory over their enemies, and the wicked were threatened with curses. Now, that doesn't mean that all rich people were blessed of God, by no means. Uh, Jeremiah says, don't let the rich man boast in his riches, but rather that he knows me. But especially in the hands of corrupt Judaism in the first century, outward blessing was associated with the righteous and affliction with the wicked. Wasn't that the problem with Job's counselors? They came to Job, Job's being afflicted. Job, affliction means sin. You must be under the curse of God because you're, you're facing these troubles. That was the mindset. 
and it was carried over into the New Testament. Remember when a tower fell on people in Siloam, and Jesus anticipated their thinking and said, do you think they were worse sinners because that tower fell on them? Because he knew what they were thinking. They must have been bad sinners that this happened to them. And Jesus said, no, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We see that problem in the disciples when they come upon the man born blind and remember their question, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he were born blind? He's suffering this affliction. That means he can't be under your blessing. Somebody sinned to bring about this affliction. You see the mindset there. And so when Jesus uh, they have the idea that riches equal blessing and favor, and affliction equals curse. So when Jesus denies the kingdom of God to a rich man and says that his riches actually can be a threat to his eternal life, he was throwing them a curve. He was presenting new wine that the old wineskins couldn't contain. And he need to recast them as new wineskins. And so we have the initial marveling, but then the heightened marveling. After Jesus reasserts his point and illustrates it with the camel and needle, we read in verse 26, they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? You see, their whole system of salvation was being turned on its head. That which they had seen as a sign of blessing was being looked at as a blight. Those whom they saw as well positioned to enter the kingdom because they were blessed materially they're being presented as excluded from the kingdom. So, finally, we see the difficulty divinely resolved. The problem here in the text is the rich getting into the kingdom of God. Riches are an obstacle to entering the kingdom. The problem is not riches per se. They are neutral. Money and things are neutral, but it's the human heart that is corrupted and comes to love what is created rather than the creator it is a problem insurmountable to man. With man, it is impossible. But notice that the impossibility is qualified. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And so what we want to see finally is man's impotence and God's potency. What is impossible with man, the word impossible is adunatos. It means without power, without might, without strength. What does the scripture say about man's powerlessness over his own idolatrous heart and over his own eternal destiny? Jeremiah 13, 23 makes this statement. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Rhetorical question. The answer is no, of course not. Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. It is impossible for you to reform and change yourself. Romans 3, 10 to 12. As Paul gives his closing arguments, indicting the whole world as under sin, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good. There's none who understands. There's none who even seeks God. What an indictment of man's impotence. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, where Paul piles up the phrases to describe the weakness and helplessness of man. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience 
Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Overwhelming worldly influence, unconquerable satanic power, irresistible human lusts, and spiritual deadness. That's our condition. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness and neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Isn't that the testimony of every saved Christian here? Can you not sing with meaning that fourth stanza of the hymn in canopy, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Can you remember in those pre-Christian days the attempts that you might have made, some of you, to change yourself? I'm going to reform my life. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to pull myself up by my proverbial bootstraps. And can you recall the bitter disappointments as you fail to effect a deep and lasting change in yourself time after time after time? Why? Because with man, salvation, whether it's a rich man or any man, is impossible. Man's impotence, but God's potency. With God, all things are possible. And the word possible means with power, with might, with strength. It's the same word. Impossible is adunitas. Possible is dunitas. Many of you know that in Greek, the A in front of a word negates it. It's called the alpha privative. So a theist is one who believes in God. An atheist is one who doesn't believe in God. Pathos is feeling. If you're apathetic, you don't have much feeling. You see, the, the A negates it. Man is adunitas. He is without power. God is dunitas. God has strength and power to do what man cannot. What does the scripture say about God's power to save? Come back to Ephesians 2. We're children of the world. We're following the prince of the power of the air. We're slaves to our own lusts. We're dead in our sins. We're children of wrath. And then you come to verse 4. But God, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You have flesh, you have world, you have devil in the first three verses. In these verses, you have grace and love and mercy and kindness, man's impotence, man's helplessness, God's great power to save. But God, rich in mercy, made us alive when we were dead. Verse John 1, 12 and 13. You can turn there. You can just listen. That's where Jesus says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the power the authority to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. He came to his own people, verse 11, the Jews, his own did not receive him. But for as many as received him, he gave the authority to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. Now, in the next verse, he's going to tell us how you came to receive Jesus, how you came to believe in Jesus. Notice, who were born, not of bloods. You're not a Christian because your parents are Christians. You didn't inherit it in your bloodline. 
nor of the will of the flesh. I got to tell you, it wasn't your own free will that put you in Christ. Nor of the will of man. It wasn't anybody else who decided that you would be a Christian. You received and you believed because you were born not of bloods, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You believed. You received Christ. Why? Because something happened before that enabled you to believe and receive the new birth. You were born of God. In John 3, 5 to 8, those familiar words when Nick comes at night, Nick at night, as my son said, most of you didn't get that. I didn't get that. I'm not cool enough to get that. But uh, um, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into, into the kingdom of God. You've got to be born of the spirit of God. And he says, the wind blows where it wills. So it is with the spirit. In Titus chapter 3, similarly referencing this idea of regeneration, this impartation of new life by the Spirit of God. Titus 3, 3 and following says, For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, here it is, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. God is able to take a rich man who loves his money and things and to so work in his heart as to make him disgusted and nauseated with his love of things and awaken in him a desperate need for God and to give him a love for God that replaces his love for things. God is able to take the man given over to sensuality and sexual lust, enslaved to it, addicted to it, and so change him as to have his mind and affections fixed supremely on the unseen things above. Yes, he will struggle, but he will say, I love God more than I love my lusts and make progress against it in his life. God is able to take the woman who is so filled with her own righteousness and a sense of her own goodness and show her the vanity of it all so that she's able to come and say with the Apostle Paul, not having a righteousness of my own, but through that which is in faith in Christ. God is able to take the man or woman for whom the smiles and favor of other people is their God. I need to have people like me. They must like me. And so the fear of man is their God, and God can so work in them as to cause them to say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, it is a very small thing that I be judged by you or by any human court. It is the Lord who judges me. The Lord is able to replace the fear of man with the fear of God. Friends, whatever in a person needs changing in order for him or her to repent and to enter the kingdom of God, though it is impossible with man, is possible with God. He is a saving God, and he does all the saving. Even the repentance and faith, which we must do, are gifts of God's grace, so that to him be all the glory. 1 Corinthians 1.30 and 31 says it well. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, 
Notice, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, whom, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. By his doing, you are in Christ. Now, how'd you get into Christ? Well, you say, I repented and believed. Yes, but it was by his doing that you, you repented and believed and got into Christ. So, in light of what we've seen this morning, a few quick applications have a balanced New Covenant perspective on money, possessions, and the use of the natural world. Avoid asceticism. You know, this strict, austere denial of natural pleasures. You're denying the good gifts of God. He's given these things for you to enjoy, food and marriage and children, and, and the whole world is yours to enjoy. Don't despise those gifts of God. Asceticism is not the high road to holiness. Temperance is often better than abstinence, self-control in the use of those things. But likewise, avoid the health, wealth, and prosperity heresy. Don't equate God's favor with material blessing and God's curse with affliction. They do not equate. Now, generally, if you're diligent, you will be blessed. And if you're slothful and lazy and wicked, you will suffer some consequences of that. But we need to avoid superficial assessments, such as were made by Job's counselors. If you're in trouble, there must be sin. You're blessed, you, 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 you're prospering, you must be blessed of God. It ain't necessarily so. We need to think more deeply than that. So avoid asceticism, one ditch. Avoid the health, wealth, prosperity, heresy on the other. Secondly, beware of the threat that the love of money and things pose to your soul. The Bible has a lot to say about money. I've been told it says more about money than it says about heaven and hell. Why? Well, because money is a commodity we need, right? We need in order to get the goods we need to, to, to live. But also, the Bible says a lot about money and gives it a lot of ink because of the threat it is to our love for God. Love for money is the antithesis of our love for God. Jesus said, you can't love both. You can't love God and mammon. And so there's a lot of attention given to money. And please understand that you don't have to be rich and have a lot of money to have the love of money. Somebody might be sitting and saying, you know, pastor, this whole sermon doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. Well, let me correct that in one sense. By the standard of the world, every one of us sitting here is rich, right? I mean, looking at the whole world, the second world and the third world, you and I are rich, comparatively speaking. But if you say, well, I'm not rich in the context of my culture, which is true of most of us, this still applies to you because you don't have to be materially rich to love money. It's a matter of the heart, and you can be dirt poor and have a covetous, greedy love for money. So what should we do? First of all, do not desire to be rich. That is evil in itself, 1 Timothy 6, 9. It's forbidden you do not desire to be rich. Though, as we said last week, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and God may make you rich, but you may not desire to be rich. If riches increase, the Bible says, don't set your heart on them. See, some people are going along and they're doing fine. No struggle with covetousness, no struggle with greed. And then all of a sudden, their ship comes in. Some of you are saying, I wish my ship would come in. But their ship comes in. All of a sudden, they get a promotion or they get a new job and, and their income is doubled and they have more money than, than they knew what to do with. And 
maybe struggle they never had before all of a sudden encroaches upon their heart. Wait a minute, I'm beginning to be attached to my riches. Well, the scripture says, don't set your heart on those things. Follow Paul's instruction in 1 Timothy 6.18. If God blesses you with riches, be rich in good works, be generous, be ready to share. And here's a good prayer from Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Give me neither poverty nor riches. And if you find yourself in the grip of a sinful love of money and attachment to things that wasn't there before, what do you do? Remember Jesus' words. If your right eye, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Do whatever you need to do to kill that sin. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And finally, recognize that God alone has the power to bring us into his kingdom. Are you in the kingdom of God this morning, this afternoon, through faith in Jesus Christ? Many of you are. How did you get there? He said, well, I did what the gospel said. I repented and believed. Yes, you did. But why did you repent and believe? Only one reason. Because the wind of the regenerating grace of God blew in your direction. Why? Why did he love you? Here's the answer. He loved you because he loved you. Because he loved you. Because he loved you. Sovereign grace. And he gets all the glory for that. And if you need forgiveness and eternal life this afternoon, it is to be found only in Jesus Christ. And he stands as an open-armed, willing Savior to all who see their need.